The historian Benjamin Park has a new book that he describes as a new history of Mormonism. The new part is the generation of documents and journals that have come to light over the last few decades. And Park draws on that material to explain how the early church transformed into the modern church and how much of that evolution was shaped by these cultural battles. But he's also interested in what he sees as this contingent nature of that change, those moments in history when Mormonism could have gone in a very different direction. And he told us about one of these moments in the tumultuous year of 1968. It was a year of humongous political turnover and change. The Democrats had been in power for nearly a decade, but now they were schisming over issues related to the civil rights movement, which led to the party losing much of the southern states where they had previously held a stronghold. And throughout the nation over the issue of Vietnam. It is a policy that believes we can brutalize the North Vietnamese. And so suddenly Lyndon B. Johnson, who was the president at the time, decides that he's not going to run again. And I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term. And the Democrats didn't know who they were going to elect next. And then the Republicans, they are in the midst of the shift as well. It's still the early stages of what comes to be known as the Southern strategy. Today, I have stood where once Jefferson Davis stood. And in the midst of all this chaos, George Wallace, the segregationist governor from Alabama, who is famous for declaring segregation today, segregation tomorrow and segregation forever, decides that he wants to run an independent campaign. He was, of course, a former Democrat and was looking for a new political coalition. And so for his running mate, he wanted someone who was not from the American South, not a former Democrat, and someone who could solidify his religious background. The Lord has declared this a day of warning and not a day of many words. And so the person he looked to was Ezra Taft Benson. My message is a witness and warning about some of the evils which threaten America, a land of I love with all my heart. Ezra Benson was an apostle in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time, but he was formerly the Secretary of Agriculture in Dwight Eisenhower's cabinet. And once he finished his tenure in Washington, D.C., he increasingly became part of the right-wing extremist camp in the Republican Party, especially those associated with the John Birch Society. They were people who believed that there was a global conspiracy led by the communists to overturn American freedom. You who have seen these dangers in the land you love will have a deep feeling for what I say. He felt that America was moving further and further away from its divine mission and it needed to be restored to those core founding principles that just so happened to overlap with his libertarian outlook. And Benson would use his general conference addresses to add to these conspiratorial discourse. Behold, this is a choice land, and whatsoever nation shall possess it shall be free from bondage and from captivity and from all other nations under heaven, if they will but serve the God of the land, who is Jesus Christ. And he had long wanted another chance to redeem American politics. 
So Benson, who is touring America as part of his apostolic duties, gets an invitation from George Wallace to fly down to Alabama and meet with Wallace in the governor's mansion, which he does on a secret trip that they do not leak to the press. And during several hours meeting with George Wallace, the two seem to find each other a soulmate in politics. They adored each other's perspective on limiting federal control, on fears of global communism, of distrust of the civil rights movement. And Ezra Benson came away both convinced that George Wallace was going to be the next president of the United States and that he, Ezra Taft Benson, was finally going to have his chance to participate in the revolution that America needed. So Ezra Taft Benson arrives back in Salt Lake City and immediately goes to meet with the Latter-day Saint prophet, David O. McKay's secretary, Claire Middlemiss, who also happened to share his political outlook and therefore would be sympathetic with his desire to meet with David O. McKay. And McKay hadn't met with anyone for weeks. Due to health and physical issues, he had been mostly bedridden and was staying in his Hotel Utah apartment. And eventually, Benson gets permission to walk over to McKay's apartment in the Hotel Utah in the afternoon, present to him the cache of documents that he had brought with him, a letter from George Wallace, a letter that Ezra Benson had written his own, all making the case that George Wallace was the right president, that Ezra Benson should be allowed to run with him on the presidential ticket. David Monroe McKay takes these letters, reads them, sits in silence for what must have been an eternity for Benson, whose life it seemed to be leading to this very moment. before finally turning to him and saying, no, you can't do it. This would not be good for the church. Your job is to focus on your ecclesiastical responsibilities. And Ezra Taft Benson, of course, was crestfallen. His belief of saving American democracy was delayed for another day. What fascinates me about this moment and this meeting was that it should be a reminder that Mormonism was never predetermined to develop in a certain direction or have certain things happen to them. Say in 1968, David O. McKay told Ezra F. Benson, yes, you have my blessing to run. Now, on the one hand, Ezra F. Benson would not have become the vice president because George Wallace was not going to receive enough electoral votes to go to the White House. But it would have meant that we would have a 1968 presidential cycle in which a Mormon apostle was on a segregationist presidential ticket. And suddenly, not only Ezra Benson, who holds a complicated place in Mormon memory, but George Wallace would suddenly be sacralized as the first presidential candidate who placed a Mormon on his ticket. You probably would have seen an upswing of Confederate sympathies among Mormons. In other words, the Mormon political development likely would have evolved a bit differently than it did. And maybe we might have seen a bit of a different hue of Mormon and Utah politicians had David O. McKay given his approval to Ezra Taft Benson. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Benjamin Park is an associate professor of history at Sam Houston State University. His book is called American Zion. 
As the title suggests, and as an epigram in the book from the Book of Mormon musical declares, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is all-American. Park also includes a quote from the Mormon critic and writer Edward Tulledge. In 1866, he said the church was traveling in the direction of American empire. There's a lot of paradoxes and ironies behind that quote that make me love it. Edward Tulledge was born in Britain. He wasn't even born American. So you might ask, what even is his affinity for the Mormon empire? Mm -hmm. He converts to Mormonism travels out to Utah, where he quickly becomes one of Mormonism's leading writers. And in fact, he is commissioned by the church to move out to New York City and do a PR campaign to improve the Mormon image during the late 1860s, which is where uh, it's from one of these newspaper editorials that that quote comes from. And he reflects this deep anxiety that I think you find throughout the Mormon experience, where on the one hand, they believe in Mormon empire building. They believe that the Mormon mission is eventually going to encompass the entire world. But they also believe that the shape in which that empire is going to be looks remarkably similar to the American empire. That when you speak the Mormon dialect for empire, you're speaking with a with an American accent. And so I think when you are looking at Mormon history, despite the fact that Mormonism has been global since its earliest decades and now has more members of the church outside the United States than in it, mm. it is still packaged predominantly through their attachments to the American imagination. And do you think its fortunes, even now, are tied to the ebb and flow of America, American ideas, American culture, American discourse? Absolutely. There's a wonderful scholar who has done some work on Mormonism in Africa who has basically said that if you want to know where Mormonism grows in Africa, look at where McDonald's are. So basically Mm. that Mormonism, even while it becomes this global denomination, is still an extension of Americanization of the world. And so many Mormon leaders, a decreasing number, thankfully, but still a majority of Mormon leaders were born in America, raised in America, educated in America, and still define most of their life through American experiences. And so I think it makes sense that for the foreseeable future, much of the Latter-day Saint Church's mission is going to be defined by their experience in an understanding of the United States. I want to ask you about your own interest in the fact that the 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 history of of the LDS faith there's always been a contested sense of what that history is and what it means there's always been this debate as you say about who's supposed to be telling the quote unquote official story um and that idea of dissent from within as well as from without you you talk about both elements but you you talk about this moment – you don't mention this in the book, but you were telling us before about this experience you had in 2008 and the former vice president of the United States, uh, Dick Cheney. He's scheduled to come speak to Brigham Young University where you were going to school and you had a – I don't know. This is a weird way to put it I guess but a, some kind of – not epiphany but some sort of revelation about this moment. What did this – talk about this, this story and what this told you about what you were yeah. seeing around you. 
Yeah, because I was raised a Latter-day Saint in a Mormon home with pioneer ancestry going back generations. I had family on both sides who lived in Nauvoo next to Joseph Smith. And so I had been, you know, raised hearing stories about the faithful, always framed around this harmonious group of saints working together, striving towards Zion. Hmm. And so then I go to Brigham Young University and I start getting an interest in history and I take courses in Mormon history and American religious history. And then in 2008, it's kind of a baptism by fire because in that same year, both Dick Cheney is invited to give the commencement address at Brigham Young University. And that's also the year of Proposition 8 with the anti-gay marriage uh, proposition on the ballot in California. Both of those things lead to massive protests at BYU. And I, I consciously remember walking around the main BYU square and seeing those protests on one subject or another. And among those people who are arguing against the church's actions on these topics, I see fellow students from my classes. I see professors who are teaching my courses, people who I knew were committed to the gospel and the church and yet opposing the church on these issues. And and that kind of struck a bell to me to where I realized that you know what, maybe Mormonism has not always been a harmonious sense of kumbaya, we're working mm-hmm. together, but maybe Mormonism instead has always been competing factions, divergent visions of people fighting over what it really means to be Mormon, what it means to follow these principles of Joseph Smith. And as soon as I started digging into those sources and reading the histories, I realized that the church's core values have been contested from the very beginning, both from those inside the faith and devoted to his cause, as well as those outside the faith who are worrying about its corrupting influence. You you write in the book that when Joseph Smith first founds the church in 1830, that he, he dictates this revelation, this commandment basically from God, that the church is to keep a record of, of this people. Um, but you mentioned in the book that what he meant was not like keep a record of the day-to-day stuff, let's – everything that happens to us. But it was a very particular type of record, one that you say would affirm Joseph Smith as the prophet and leader. Um, t- talk a little bit about that, the, the, the idea that he said keep a record but keep a – what keep a clean record is what he was saying. I guess. Right. All right. On the on the day the church was founded, Joseph Smith dictates this revelation that says that there shall be a record kept among you. Those words are now found embossed on the wall of the church history library in Salt Lake City. So yeah. they're scriptural, profound statements. But in that revelation, it says, and in that record, it shall say that Joseph Smith is a seer and a prophet and called of God to lead the church. And so there's a record, but it's a record that's supposed to attest to the divinity of the church. Now, the saints take that counsel and they run with it. Within a few years, Joseph Smith has called someone to be the official historian of the church and they start keeeping records. And, you know, when I ever talk, talk to other people who work on other religious groups in early America, they're often jealous of the rich repository of sources that historians of Mormonism have as a result of this declaration that there shall be a record kept. But that record ends up being divisive in and of itself. The person who is first appointed as the original church historian, he ends up leaving the faith and he Mm -hmm. takes his history and his records with him. 
Now, that continues on several decades later when other church leaders are appointed to be church historians and they produce a series of different uh, historical works that are still read today. Uh, But even as recently as a few decades ago, the church historian's office in Salt Lake City came under the uh, direct uh, frustration of church leaders when they were producing histories that leaders felt were too secular or not enough of affirming that Joseph Smith is a prophet, a seer, a president of the church. So... History plays this central yet contested role in the Latter-day Saint tradition from the very beginning. Where would you say the church is today in terms of telling its, you know, its, I don't know how to put this, real or actual history? Not the reverent faith-promoting version, but the real history. You, if, a, if someone wants to go to the history um, archive— you know, will they be given full access? Can can you actually go out and find those documents and be? And will the church share them with you if you want to tell a story that may not exactly comport with what Joseph Smith, for example, had in mind when he had that revelation? We've seen some remarkable growth from the Latter-day Saint institution in terms of historical access and historical writing in recent years. The Joseph Smith Papers Project, uh, the Saints Volume, the Mountain Meadows Massacre Project, all of these attest to the church being more willing to confront some of the difficult historical issues. So in fact, when you deal with the 19th century, there are a few records that are off limits. Uh, Most historians, including historians like me can go into the church history archives and get nearly everything we need to. In fact, I'll I'll give a a huge praise for uh, church history library employees during the pandemic who not only opened access to sources, but would digitize and send them to me. I remember one time I would wake up on a Monday morning and I'd be like, I really need access to this diary. And I'd put in a digitization request to the library. And by Wednesday morning, I had high resolution scans in my inbox. Um, and so that's that's a huge testament to how far church leaders have come in allowing historical research. I will say it gets a bit uneven when you get to the 20th century or the modern church. Hmm. It seems that the Joseph Papers Project and other things have expanded the scope of what's acceptable discourse or historical investigation, especially concerning early Mormon leaders, that isn't really granted to modern leaders. Because I think there's a fear, and I know I'm playing uh, the armchair historian psychologist here. But I think there's a fear that the closer you get to humanizing modern day prophets, the more of a challenge it is to modern day prophetic authority. Mm-hmm. That if you start showing them as rooted in their historical moment today, that means, well, how many of their decisions or their policies are also rooted in context and not in divine mandate? And so I think there are still questions that are going to be a struggle going forward for the foreseeable future. Benjamin Park. He's an associate professor of history at Sam Houston State University. His book is American Zion, A New History of Mormonism. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Let 
let me ask you about the um, you because you write about the kind of the surrounding culture of religious competition and individual liberty that really helped the church exist in the first place. And here's where it's on. It seems. The, the, the LDS Church, a parallel track with the American experiment. And you write – you begin with – and this makes sense, of course – the you know, Joseph Smith's family. Um, Smith's family, you write, experienced this you know, shift just as the country is, is coming into this experience of religion being – Part of this dynamic marketplace, so there's, there's, so it seems like what's going on is the country is shifting, trying to sort of figure out its economy, its intellectual economy, its you know religious economy, the, the marketplace, and the same thing is going. This this is the context for Joseph Smith and his family, and this is the sort of what gets us going, I suppose. Yeah. We often celebrate, rightly so, democracy and opening up a chance for everyday people to participate in everything, religion, politics, economy, and so forth. But I think it's important to remember that in early America, democracy was an experiment and an experiment that not only brought opportunity, but it brought chaos. It brought lots of chances for people to both get successes, but also fall behind. So you see in the Smith family, Different generations experiencing this democratization, this free market differently. Joseph Smith Jr.'s grandparents, they succeed in getting a new life and they find some religious communities that better suit their will, that breaking away from their long ancestral religious affiliation. Mm. They're able to get some success in the economic marketplace. They seem destined for a bright future. But then Joseph Smith Jr.'s parents, Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Mack Smith, they experience the downside of that democratic culture. They face frequent religious wandering, not able to find a religion that can hold them together. They face financial ruin when an investment goes horribly. Mm -hmm. They end up becoming tenants, moving from farm to farm and situation to situation without much recourse. And so Joseph Smith like many early Americans, was desperate to find an anchor in the sea of tumult. And so democracy brings so many chances to reform your life, but it also brings the perils of loss. And Mormonism both takes advantage of that democratic impulse. This is a religion where you don't need a higher education in divinity to be a, a minister. But it also tries to curtail what they see the excesses of democracy. We're going to provide you purpose. We're going to provide you a solid foundation. We're going to provide you an authoritarian voice that can cut through the morass of chaos and tell you your job here on life. And initially tens and then hundreds and eventually thousands found that message persuasive in early America. And that's where the birth of Mormonism really finds its rise. So there's a story that you tell in the book that really gets at these two elements that you, 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 you're exploring. One is you know, um, talking about these lost voices. Another is these forgotten alternative trajectories. Um, let's talk about – I'm not sure how he – is it Quack Walker? Lewis? Quack Walker Lewis. Quack. You could just – yeah, Q Walker Lewis. Q Walker Lewis. I'm not sure that first name. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about um, – 
Let's call him Walker Lewis. Um, yeah, sure. Because it seems like in some ways this story represents a really – the way I saw you play it out in the book, one of those really interesting turning points when the church has an opportunity to think one way about you know, enslaved people, formerly enslaved people, you know, um, race – of course, because that's one of the disputed internal disputes in the in the um, church. Talk about his story, because this seems like a, a a turning point. Yeah, Q. Walker Lewis was born into a, an abolitionist family with deep activist roots. His uncle was one of the people who sued for his freedom during the 1770s and 1780s that led to universal emancipation mm-hmm. in Massachusetts. Uh, he worked with uh, another individual, David Walker, no relation, who published one of the most important abolitionist tracts written by a black author. And so his family were proud of their African ancestry and believed that there was a abolitionist message that was necessary to redeem America. And at some point in the 1840s, he embraces Mormonism. He sees in Mormonism an expansion of this abolitionist vision. He thought that it was a racially universal message that was going to bring salvation to him and his family. He was even, he was baptized by one apostle, uh, ordained to the priesthood by another, and he ends up being the lead priesthood figure in his local congregation in the mid-1840s. And so here you have a black member of the faith Mm -hmm. who is interpreting Mormonism in a particular way. However, a crisis comes when his son, Enoch Lewis, ends up marrying a white woman, a member of the congregation, and they have a child. And a visiting missionary comes through, and he immediately writes a letter to Brigham Young. This is after Joseph Smith dies. He (laughs) writes a letter to Brigham Young and says— are we accepting of interracial marriages and interracial unions? Because to many northern white Americans and southern white Americans, but even those against slavery in the north, they're against interracial sex and interracial unions. And Brigham Young immediately shoots back a response saying, we are against interracial unions. Anyone who does this should have their throat slit. This is not of the gospel. And it's out of that crisis that a racial restriction policy begins to be formed. Now, Walker Lewis does not know about this at all. He eventually decides to migrate to Utah around 1851, heads out to Utah, leaves his family behind to go gather with the saints because this is the time that to be Mormon means gathering, not just believing, but physically moving. And Mm. he goes out to Utah. And while he arrives in Utah during those few months, which first of all must have been a massive change from being in Massachusetts to moving out (laughs) to the arid Utah, But it's during that time that Brigham Young gets in front of the Utah Territorial Legislature Mm -hmm. and declares that there is a racial restriction placed on those of African descent, that they shall never hold the priesthood. And if no prophet has said it before, I declare it now. And it's at those same legislative sessions that he also declares Utah to be a slave territory. Now, I don't think Walker Lewis was present at those legislative meetings, but it's hard to imagine that he didn't at least hear the message because within a few weeks of that, 
He moves back to Boston. He goes back to the land of his ancestors because this religion, this region that he believed was going to be his home had taken a different direction. And the Mormonism that he believed in was no longer there. Now, I don't know if this was a a contingent moment, but you do mention Orson Pratt makes a stand at that – you mentioned this territorial legislature where Brigham Young has made these statements. And Orson Pratt, you say, takes a a valiant abolitionist stand. Now, I'm not sure what chance he would have had against Brigham Young, (laughs) but it did seem – like a kind of quixotic moment. And maybe, maybe people could have listened to him. That seems kind of contingent to me. Right. I think there's a lesson there. And first of all, let me give a shout out to Paul Reeve, Lejean Kroof, and Christopher Rich, who have been unpacking these legislative debates and have a book coming out later this year that talks about these debates, that that it's going to be phenomenal. But what Orson Pratt does is he gets up and he directly challenges Brigham Young. Now, Orson Pratt, for those who know a bit of history, know that he's not afraid of challenging officials. He had run-ins with both Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. And he gets up and he challenges Brigham Young and says— There's no racial curse. Slavery is evil. What are we thinking here? This is not the way to go. And so this is why I always get frustrated when I hear people say that, well, to critique Brigham Young for his racist views as presentist because you're placing your modern day sensibilities back on those of the past. I want to respond. Orson Pratt didn't think so. Orson Pratt was there and he is saying that the Mormon gospel does not mesh with this anti-black racism that's being spewed that ends up becoming a a crucial Mormon idea for a century. Uh, Further, I think it's also important to note that when we're taking modern day sensibilities and placing on the past, let's also look at the views of Walker Lewis. His voice also mattered. And guess what? He also wouldn't have agreed with agreed with what Brigham Young was saying there. And so that's what I mean with these divergent perspectives of what the Mormon vision was had always been contested, even on what come to be known as foundational doctrines like the racial restriction. Did indigenous people get a voice. Was there a voice here? that you, you, you write about this, the idea of they were thought of, interpreted as Lamanites. M- maybe explain this part of the story. Yeah, from the start, Mormons are have this complicated relationship to the indigenous peoples yeah. of North America because the Book of Mormon, which allegedly told the story of the ancestors of Native Americans, seemed to imply that the Indigenous people would eventually triumph on the continent. And then when the Mormons move out to Utah, you get lots and lots of speculation and fear from the American government that the Mormons are going to form an alliance with the Native Americans. Um, And a a fear that wasn't without a base. I mean, Mm -hmm. there were some alliances going on with Brigham Young and a number of the indigenous leaders like Wakara and others. Um, and so Mormons tried to have this outreach to Native Americans whom they believed to be at the House of Israel and that it was their job as Latter-day Saints to bring the gospel to the remnants of the Lamanites. The problem was the cultural baggage with which the Mormons were born and raised and around which they grew 
ends up being too heavy. And so they end up treating Native Americans much like other white American Protestants do during the uh, 19th century. People who can be colonized and overturned and, and eventually kicked out or moved to reservations. And so that conflict between the ideal and the reality was very different. And, and you have indigenous voices, people who were trying to push for inclusion and saying that we are the chosen people, uh, we have a birthright here, listen to our voice, and who often get overlooked. And I was especially fascinated mm -hmm. that their voices don't go away. There's often this story, this narrative of American religious history of interaction between the white Protestants, or in this case, the white Mormons and Native Americans during the pre-Civil War era or during the era of colonization. And then those voices disappear, the vanishing Indian myth. But I was surprised. I was I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was taken by how much those indigenous voices still play a crucial role in the 20th century of Mormonism, whether it be through the uh, Indian placement program or through the Lamanite uh, programs at BYU or all these indigenous voices who are pushing back against the Lamanite framework for indigenous Mormons that you find throughout the 20th century, even up to today. Benjamin Park. His new book is American Zion, A New History of Mormonism. We'll take another break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. So let's talk about another one of these uh, seems like contingency moments. And this is a really um, interesting time in the 1920s and 30s. And it has to do with the dispute over the the secular and spiritual mission of the church's education system. So I wanted to start with this man named Franklin Harris. I can't say I knew anything about this guy. He comes along during this period when some LDS leaders believe that you could be a you know a full fledged you know believer in the, the the Bible and other Christian beliefs, but also a believer and follower of modern science. You know that that they didn't conflict. And Harris, I guess he's an academic. He's president of BYU, and he you say sets out to sort of modernize the school, and that gets us to one of these I guess really important moments. Take us through this story. Yeah, it's unfortunate many people don't know about Franklin Harris. And unfortunately, because they just tore down the Franklin Harris Fine Arts Building at BYU, fewer people will know his name. <laughs> but he became president in the 1920s, the first monogamist and the first person with the advanced degree to be president of Brigham Young University. And he was part of a generation of Latter-day Saints who really believed that the possibilities, the horizons for Mormon thinking were broad and could be engage with modern scholarship. This is at the time where apostles like John Whitsoe and James Talmadge are writing works that say that Mormonism squares with modern conceptions of knowledge and truth. Yeah. You have John Whitsoe writing the, the book Joseph Smith as a scientist that says that Joseph Smith uh, prefigured all these scientific advances and Mormons should not be afraid of them. And Franklin Harris took them at their word. He's like, mm -hmm. all right, I'm going to turn Brigham Young University 
into a world-class institution. I'm going to hire people with advanced degrees from prestigious universities. I'm going to grant my professor sabbaticals so they can go do further research. And I'm going to emphasize that you have the, the intellectual freedom to explore what you need. And during the 1920s and 1930s, you see a major shift at the curriculum at BYU where they're teaching things that were pretty commonly taught at all other universities. You even have a lot of their best and brightest teachers sent to the University of Chicago to study at what was then the hotbed of modernist religious scholarship. Those scholars who were overturned traditional fundamentalist beliefs, those are the teachers who are teaching the Mormon religious teachers at the time. And they end up setting up this summer retreat, this camp at Aspen Grove, where they would bring back their instructors or they'll fly in the University of Chicago teachers to then teach all the LDS instructors. But there were some leaders who were upset with this direction. They, They feared that Mormonism was losing its core values. For instance, Joseph Fielding Smith, who was uh, an apostle at the time, the son of Joseph F. Smith, the the grandson of Hiram Smith, one of the founding leaders of the faith. Here's one of these Chicago's trained instructors and says, if what he is teaching gets accepted as higher education in our faith, we might as well close up shop and call Mormonism a failure. And They had some right to be worried that Mormons were losing values. A a number of studies that were taking place at BYU in the 1930s showed that a large number of Mormon students were not as committed to fundamental doctrines anymore. And so in that context comes J. Reuben Clark, who I argue is probably the most important figure to understand the rise of modern Mormonism, that he creates modern Mormonism in the 1930s in response to these cultural trends, that he fears Mormonism is moving along to this progressive path. They are becoming too committed to democratic politics because the majority of Mormons were voting for uh, Democrats for president, that they were becoming too committed to secular uh, educational disputes because they're buying into University of Chicago curriculum, that they're moving away from the domestic model of gender because women are participating in activism during this time with Amy Brown Lyman and others. And Jay Ruben Clark wants to put a stop to that. So one by one, let, let me just say, challenges. Let, yeah. let, let me just say, I just want to step in and say, I think what's so fascinating about the story is that it isn't just, of course, something that's happening in the modern church where you have progressive, progressives, um, you know, and intellectuals arguing with conservatives over the meaning of doctrine. I mean, this is happening in the 20s and the 30s in Mormonism. And you mentioned that there was this survey taken in 1935, 1935, that said 60, about 64 percent believed that the existence of humans came about in part because of biological evolution. In other words, I mean, this is a this is well beyond a majority of people within the faith who are siding with this progressive notion. Um, and so I guess what you're saying in that sense, as you say, J. Reuben Clark had a reason to worry. Right. I mean, and 30, only 38 percent of BYU students in that study said that there was a literal devil, wow. which wow. if you were to ask BYU students now, that would be a very different percentage. Huh. So he ends up giving this monumental address in 1938 at the same summer camp where up until that point, modernist ideas had been flourishing. And he delivers an address that comes to be known as a charted 
course, where he says that Latter-day Saint instructors should not listen to the newfangled ideas of academies. He actually used the word newfangled. That isn't something that a script writer comes up with. The newfangled ideas, we are going to stick with the fundamentals of the gospel. And that term, fundamentals of the gospel, was taken from the broader cultural debate between modernists and fundamentalists. So he is appropriating Hmm. what's going on. And that text, the, the charted course address, ends up being basically scripture for religion educators in Mormonism ever since. If you teach religion for the Latter-day Saint institution at one of their universities or in seminary or institute, you are still required to read J. Reuben Clark's charted address Hmm. because that's what closes off a number of trajectories that others like Franklin Harris are pushing for in the 1920s and 1930s and charts this new course that still frames how the church operates today. Did this moment influence more than just higher education or education within the church? Did it also have an effect on, you know, the, I I guess I'll put it this way, the political ideology of the church? So if this was a contingent moment where the church could have headed one way ideologically, did this sort of stop that in its tracks? And does this help explain in some way why Mormonism today, at least American Mormonism, is so aligned with conservative Republican politics. Absolutely, because the fundamentals that J. Reuben Clark outlined in that address that soon became the fundamentals upon which modern Mormonism was to be built were things like prophetic authority, scriptural literalism, Hmm. Joseph Smith is a divine prophet. Hmm. All these terms that package together fit into a particular cultural matrix that matches them to things like the religious right and evangelicals who are pushing similar principles, even if the specifics are different. Because during the same time, J. Reuben Clark is also trying to shift the direction of Mormon political involvement. J. Reuben Clark was raised as a devoted partisan Republican, mm-hmm. and he hated the Democratic Party, the socialists that he feared were leading America in the wrong direction. And once he joined the First Frenzy, he tried to push Mormons to disaffiliate from the Democratic Party. And so every time Franklin Delano Roosevelt was on the presidential ticket, J. Ruin Clark would write an editorial for Deseret News saying, do not vote for this guy. Vote for the Republican. And guess what? Each of those four times, the Mormons voted for FDR showing that there was a divergence at the time between J. Reuben Clark and the majority Latter-day Saints. But what he does is he lays the foundation. He plants the seeds with these fundamentals that are going to slowly, if surely, start shifting the Mormons ever so closer to the American right. But here's a question, and this may be one you aren't crazy about engaging as an historian, but do you think Mormonism would have aligned very well with a more progressive ideal. I mean, in the end, doctrinal and ideological conservatives won the day. But what if, you know, liberals had won? Does the church have the right kind of framework or flexibility to have gone that way? I think Mormonism has proven especially adept to be successful due to their pioneer roots, due to the deep commitment of their members to where they probably could have been successful on a number of different directions. Mm. Now, of course, those denominations that end up taking a much more mainstream progressive course during these same decades, the decades following the 1930s and 1940s, 
those denominations end up struggling for one way or another. But those, of course, have unique circumstances. So, of course, there are some scholars that say it is because of the conservative shift that J. Rubin Clark and others push that align this in-group commitment of Mormonism that is what makes it so strong today. I think that's that's a fair argument, but historians are horrible at counterfactuals. All I will say that I, I think that this contingent nature shows that just because Mormonism developed a certain way following the 1930s doesn't mean it's predetermined to follow a certain way after the 2020s. You say in the book that there is no single Mormon culture, that there's no universal Mormon identity. What do you mean by that? I mean that there have been as many Mormonisms as there have been Mormon believers, Hmm. that because the faith was founded by an individual who was asking his own questions and seeking his own visions, that sets a precedent for every follower after him to do likewise, which means that not all those visions are going to are going to fully align and all those experiences are not going to be the same. And the faith has succeeded as as making this big tent pole with where millions of members have been able to fit underneath, but to assume that Mm. all those believers have the same ideas and the same practices and same conceptions is just ignoring the lived reality. And so to understand modern Mormonism means to understand the wide variety of experiences that led to this moment and still exist in this moment even today. I'm tempted to ask where you think well, as an historian, it's an audacious question to even ask you. <laughs> I mean, but I'm tempted to ask where you think this will end, you know, with the church forging ahead, maybe even gathering a new head of steam or dissipating, you know, not going away. Sure. But dissipating as a faith. But it doesn't sound like you think it, it will end. I mean, you write that these contests between faith and doubt will likely never dissipate. But I wonder if you can reconcile two ideas I found in the book. On one hand, you say Mormonism is this attempt, as you said earlier, to find facts in the world. This is what Joseph Smith was interested in, to find certainty, to find belonging and permanence. But you also write that Mormonism's religious imagination remains as unsettled as ever. And you say that evidence for that is the fact that Mormonism is this This is how you put it, this open canon of truth that's sweeping and audacious. So on one hand, it seems like, okay, it's it's set, it's settled, it's here's the answer to the question, here's permanence, here's certainty. But on the other hand, our canon is sweeping, it's malleable, it's plastic. So it sounds as though what you're saying is though, even though Mormonism is thought of as this closed system with a really rigid, you know, orthodoxy or set of rules that in fact it's pretty flexible and in fact maybe it always has been. Yeah, it always has been. I think we've sometimes lost that vision within the Mormon community though, huh. because in recent decades as the church has finally received what is long sought after, which is cultural acceptance and part of a broader American cultural coalition, including political power with the American religious right. 
they've kind of settled into a particular groove. And once you settle into a groove, it is hard to change. And so I, I close the book talking about LGBTQ issues mm-hmm. and how the question can be asked, is the church going to change its position on uh, – queer saints in order to survive in a world where it seems especially hard to survive if you aren't adapting to that. And I'm growing increasingly skeptical about that because (laughs) unlike previous moments of crisis for the faith, there is not as much external pressure to change because the church has found cultural allies in America, other people who are pushing against LGBTQ rights, other people who are fighting against the liberal consensus, Hmm. other people who are trying to push back to a glorified old days of tradition. And as long as they feel like they're not fighting the battle alone, I don't think they're going to change their battle stance like they have over the racial restriction or polygamy. So I came away from this book both reified on the idea that the faith has the potential to change at a moment's notice, Mm. but also skepticism that it will change going forward because I think the church is in a much more established, accepted place now than it has been at points of change in the past. Benjamin Park, thank you very much. Been a pleasure. Benjamin Park. He's an associate professor of history at Sam Houston State University. His book is American Zion, A New History of Mormonism. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have ideas or comments or feedback, let us know. You can email us at radiowest at KUER.org. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Carrie Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Thank you.